0: Given uh, there's a number of new people listening tonight that are here um, just to say that tonight's talk is a little different than what we normally do because it's going to be directly focused on how we speak with each other in the world and I find that spiritual practice is often compartmentalized and we think of spiritual practices when we're on our meditation cushions or at a class or on the top of a mountain in Reverie or whatever, but these special circumstances. And yet, huge swaths of our day are in what we might call very ordinary mode of at work, talking with colleagues, with our children or our partner, talking and negotiating life circumstances or doing errands or whatever. And unless we can find a way to bring a wakeful quality of heart and mind and infuse it into what we think of as the ordinary moments, most of our life is that big in-between zone that it ends up being vacant, and there's not a um, integration or maturity to our our waking up. So. We'll explore those moments when we're speaking with each other tonight. And I could spend a year on this, and we could just keep on exploring it. And I'll say to start that if you did nothing else for a long time, but bring a real dedicated attention to how you speak with other people, you'd find it profoundly liberating, really freeing there's a story of a a big, tough samurai who goes to see a a monk and he says in a voice accustomed to obedience, instant obedience, he said, monk, teach me about heaven and hell, you know. And the monk looked at this mighty warrior and replied with utter disdain, teach you about heaven and hell? He says, I couldn't teach you about anything. You're dirty and you smell. and your blade is rusty. (laughs) You're a disgrace and an embarrassment to the samurai class. Get out of my sight. I can't stand you." (laughs) And so the samurai is furious and he's shaking and getting all red in the face and speechless with rage so he pulls out his sword and raises it above him preparing to slay the monk. That's hell, the monk says softly. The samurai is overwhelmed with the compassion and surrender of this little man who's offered his life to give him this teaching. He's just, he's almost given himself for that and, and he's so overwhelmed that he puts his sword down, he's filled with gratitude and he's suddenly peaceful. And that's heaven, the monk said softly. How we relate to each other can either bring an experience of heaven, of freedom, of this loving that's not being held back, that's flowing, of creativity, of beauty, of mystery, of adventure. It can, it can be heaven. Or it can be a contraction where we're stuck inside a very small sense of self And it's usually a sense of self that feels insecure and ashamed and not really good about itself. Even when we're at our most arrogant, that's hell. So how do we wake up and begin to really be with each other in a way that is expressing presence? Really expressing presence, not being automatic, not being reactive. So, um, one thing to to name is that wise speech which is our our topic for the evening mindful speech is considered to be one of the eightfold path it's clustered with working mindfully mindful work and mindful action and this cluster of being in the world is guided by this basic understanding that our, our freedom an expression of spirit is reverence for life So mindful speech comes out of reverence for life, a deep respect, a deep love for life. And I can say for myself that I've had many rounds of recognizing that I was in some habit pattern of unmindful speaking. And we're gonna go over some of the main categories of unmindful speaking so that we can be more alert to it. But I'd, I'd recognize it and really get the dukkha which is the the word for suffering, how much it was creating separation, how much it was keeping me inside a mind state that wasn't pleasant. And so I've had many rounds of seeing that and rededicating to really focusing my attention on training in mindful speaking and speaking from the heart and speaking from an embodied place. And and I forget all the time. It's so easy to go into a trance when we're with each other. But I find that each time I dedicate myself, there's some deepening in my remembrance about it. So my hope for you tonight is that as we go through these areas of where we really go into trance with each other and get reactive, that you'll flag what's relevant to you. And that, as I've experienced, you'll deepen the attention in a way that really opens up, opens up life. Uh, then when we're on the road, so to speak, when we're out in the field with other people, it becomes a really interesting journey because we know that each, each conversation is an opportunity, each one, to remember that reverence and to speak from the whole of who we are. So the basic guidelines that the Buddha offered us in in wise speech or mindful speech are very simple. He said, speak what is true and speak what is helpful. And make sure that both are there, you know, that it's true and helpful. And so on the surface, this is very straightforward and clean and simple and beautiful. And it's really, really challenging it's really challenging because often what we feel is truthful to say doesn't, maybe isn't so, doesn't seem so helpful how we're doing it and sometimes what might seem helpful doesn't feel so on, on the mark true, so it's, it's an inquiry. Now the domains that the Buddha described that include wise speech are to abstain from false speech which means what's untrue which includes lies but it also includes white lies and it includes exaggeration okay so that's one of the three that I'm going to talk about tonight and then he said to abstain from slander which includes ways that we might condemn people often behind their back but it also includes gossip okay So I'm kind of giving you the range a little bit. And the third thing was avoid harsh speech, which could be anything from directly aggressive blasting somebody to a more passive aggressive, a little bit of guilt induction or whatever. Okay, so these are our our domains. And so we're gonna look at how even the subtle versions of these, just some white lies or some gossip or you know, however we indirectly say things can really trap us in, um, in a spiritual way, trap us from and keep us from discovering and living from who we can be. So we'll take them one by one. And when we begin with um, false speech, untrue speech, this is uh, pretending, exaggerating, lying and so on. If you look in, in Amazon for books on deception, there's a huge number of them. It's, it's an increasing number in the field about, you know, what, what, how, what makes us lie, how can we do it, and um, how, how frequently we do it. Some of these might sound familiar as just the most, um, the most popular <laughs> white lies. It, it wasn't me, or, gee, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> Um, the check is in the mail, I never got the message she's only a friend uh, oh, yeah, your, your baby looks so beautiful <laughs> and, and uh, that looks really good on you um, I'm starting my diet on Monday thank you, dinner was so delicious and this is called a dude lie my best friend's a good guy, he's just finding his way translation he's an alcoholic and a womanizer can't hold down a job but I've known him since we were 12 so I can't say anything (laughs) so these are from the internet and we know them we know how often it is that we exaggerate our our say things we're not that aren't exactly what we really mean it's a habit and there's a um, consequence. But the reason it is so pervasive, deception is so pervasive, is that it's one of the main tools in evolution for surviving, for getting what we need, and for gaining advantage. You know, camouflage, take camouflage. I'll give you a few more examples because I was just reading this week about a certain kind of... that they found in France that uh, the males have permanent female plumage and it's and they're not attacked as much but from other other males don't attack them so much and um, they get all sorts of benefits and then I was reading about these garter snakes and they when they come out of hibernation they emit these feminine hormones and what happens is that garter snakes form mating balls of about 100 males to a female. And when these s- snakes come out of, out of hibernation and emit the feminine pheromones, all the males cluster around them and warm them up. And then once they're warm enough, because they come out really cold, then they stop emitting the pheromone and the guys leave and they go on. So it's the way they get, they get a snake hug, you know? And <laughs> I think it's kind of cool. Okay, in Brazil, the large cats, there's some large cat that mimics the cry of a baby monkey. And then when the other monkeys concerned come and try to find the baby, you know what happens, pounce, right? So there's that one. One more. Baby German cockroaches. (laughs) It just seems so far-fetched. Anyway, of both sexes, mimic the feel and, and smell of adult, adult females and it dupes the adult into spreading wings and exposing hidden pa- pantries of food underneath. So again, it's just these pretenses that we do too. I mean, you know, humans have our whole range and what they do is they give us certain kinds of gains and they protect us. And so it's what I sometimes call a false refuge. It's very compelling, it's very effective, and it causes us trouble in the long run. So we can see it in per, our personal history will, will incline us towards more deception. You know, if we grew up in a family that was very punishing, you know, there was, there was a real consequence to truth, then, we go, then you can see the children that lie the most You know it's to protect them from getting in trouble for something and we can see it for ourselves i mean i was noticing the other day i was going to a doctor's appointment and i had decided to get a few more things done before i left and so i i was late and i watched my mind making up excuses about the traffic as i was going there what i was going to say that wasn't true And it's like I kept saying, you know, you're not going to say this, but then my mind would come up with another (laughs) excuse that wasn't real, you know. And so our minds just do it. There's this kind of way that we want to protect ourselves from looking bad or getting in trouble. And then, of course, you know, it happens in relationships. And one of the most uh, difficult ways, and I'll give you an example of this later, is lying about other relationships to a partner to avoid jealousy or more conflict or some sort of punitive uh, behavior. Some of you might remember the story of this, this young man, John, who invites his mother to dinner and during the meal, John's uh, mother can't help but notice how beautiful uh, John's roommate is. And so uh, she's long been suspicious of relationship between the two and this only made her more curious. And watching them interact over the evening, she really wondered, there was more to this relationship than met the eye. So reading uh, his mother's thoughts, the guy volunteers, he says, look, I know what you might be thinking, but I assure you that Carrie and I are just roommates, okay? About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, you know, ever since your mother came here for dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't think she did something with it, do you? So he says, I doubt it, I'll email her just in case. So he writes, dear mother, I'm not saying you did or did not do anything with the soup ladle, but it's odd that it disappeared after the dinner. Do you know anything about this? Later, he received an email from his mother that read, Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying that you don't, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. LAUGHTER So when we expect some sort of punishment we, we shape events a certain way. And we will lie for personal gain. And again, this comes, we can see it in our history, if we did not get the attention we needed, if our, if our needs were not met, then we'll use exaggeration and we'll misrepresent ourselves in order to get the attention and the approval that we are longing for. So you can see it, I mean, how many of us will exaggerate something positive, exaggerate an achievement or the kind of good feedback we got from someone, you know, the classic fish stories of how big was it, you know, we, we do that. We also pretend with each other to agree sometimes, to, we kind of mime each other in a way so that we can have more connection. So we sometimes withhold or misrepresent our our beliefs or where we're at so that we can just be getting along and having good feelings with other people. So the suffering of this, you know, because sometimes little white lies might seem they're fine and sometimes there's probably an intelligence to them, but the habit of misrepresenting, of withholding information, of not speaking truth Um, really in a deep way it it affects our soul, it affects the clarity and brightness of our being there's been, um, I've described here a description of what um, people, what one hospice worker found was really most important or most biggest regrets uh, when people are dying And one of them that struck me was this one. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings, to speak what was true for me. That there's a sense that if we were at the end of our life looking back, we would be really dedicated to not exaggerating or pretending Are being other than who we are because there's a karma to it and the karma is this that in any moment that we misrepresent we create distance we can't be intimate if we're not being real we create a distance where we're not able to really trust ourselves or the other person because well if they knew the truth then something bad would happen, I'd get punished. Or something. So we can't trust the relationship because it's based on a false assumption. We're not speaking truth. And in a very deep way, and this is the thing I wanna to emphasize tonight, is that when we don't speak from a place of truth and clarity, our identity becomes small. We become identified with the self that has to defend and pretend. We reinforce a sense of a small self. I sometimes call this the spacesuit self that's trying to make it through life, but we get identified with the spacesuit that's pretending something. And it's very hard to remember and be at home with who we really are. We can't discover that. The more we are in the habit of exaggerating, or misleading, or misrepresenting, the more we actually do it in our own mind to ourselves. In other words, if we're lying to the world, we also misrepresent reality to ourselves. It's not like we're lying to the world, but we stay very clear with truth in ourselves. We have to deceive ourselves. So it's a false refuge. One woman, this is an example for you, who who lied about a relationship she was, she was, when she was engaged with her husband-to-be she continued a relationship with an old flame and she lied about that to her husband and he, even after they were married, was suspicious because the two still had a friendship and there was something he detected and she had stopped the relationship but she kept the lie and then she had a, because he was suspicious and jealous, she felt resentful of him and she felt, and then she added lies upon lies and it was poisonous. It, it was a real wedge in the relationship. And what happened was they could never address the original wound, the original mistrust because she kept adding on layers, which is the problem that when we take false refuge, when we use the defense and armor of lies, we can't actually name and touch and bring healing to the place inside us that's afraid, that needs support, that in some way is not at home with ourselves. So in the deepest way, not speaking truth obscures our true nature. We are identified with the self who's exaggerating and can't really be in touch with who we are. Now this is true in our individual relationships and it's also true in the larger world that if as a society, we don't name what's true, you know, just the way she couldn't name the disease in her relationship, but if we don't name what's true, we don't have a shared understanding of what needs attention. So consider the disaster for our earth. If we can't name the truth of global warming, if we can't name the truth of how much toxicity is in our air and our water and entering our bodies and if we can't name the truth of all the animals that are struggling because of the way humans are treating this earth we'll never address it or will as we're doing now address it in such a limp manner as to not in any way meet the tragedy that's befalling our precious planet if we can't name the truth it's disaster Consider the suffering when we can't name the truth of the violence that happens to certain people in certain places and the social injustice that happens. If we don't name that it's really true and happening, if we turn a blind eye, what's the result? This is Martin Niemöller, who's a a German pastor. He said, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. So you might just take a moment, we'll reflect with each of these categories, just to take a moment Um, to close your eyes and just sense, if you can, with interest, and this this reflection requires your interest, not judgment, an interest and a care, to just notice for yourself where in your life you might be in the habit of either lying about something are slanting things a certain way to make a point, are exaggerating to get approval or impress, where you might withhold something that's true out of fear, where you might not be speaking your truth or where you might be speaking something that's not quite true. And it may be that this is not something that matches for you. You might find that you feel aligned. And that is good to honor. But if it's not the case, this can be a real gift to the soul to begin to notice, oh, this is something I want to really become more aligned in. if you notice areas where you feel that you exaggerate or lie or withhold, you might sense when or how that happens and what your sense of self is when you're using false speech or withholding truth. What's your sense of self at those moments? Just so you have a flag, a reminder And just taking a few full breaths and come on back. That's one category, okay? Now the next category is slander, or its uh, more light form is called gossip. And this is something we do when we in some way want, we all compare ourselves to others. And gossip or slander comes when we in some way want to put someone down or put ourselves up it creates division I mean gossiping creates division there's that person and then there's us or me so from an evolutionary perspective I'm not sure of other animals that that gossip regularly or or slander each other but I do have one story to share that you know after retreat we often feel very open and raw and so on and sometimes at the end of retreat I share this little story or this cartoon of there's this mess of sheep, a flock of sheep, and then these two that are kind of over on the side and they're obviously talking about one of the sheep in the group and they say, you know, every time she comes back from being sheared she can't stop talking about how vulnerable she feels, you know (laughs) So that's sheep gossiping at least (laughs) So what makes it hard to give up? I mean, think of it I remember when um, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, was was talking about his practices with with wiser, mindful speech, and he, we were, and he was describing gossiping. And again, it's one of these incredibly pervasive things: talking about others when they're not there in a way that's not completely reverential, right? <laughs> I mean, it happens a lot. So um, you know, to say to yourself, "Okay." I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk behind anybody's back in a way that I wouldn't speak right to their face. So that's what he committed to. And he said he has conversations with others, had a lot of silence, <laughs> a lot of quietness, you know. So what makes it so hard to give up? You know, and, and part of it, as I mentioned, is that there's some pleasure, some sense of, of boosting and inflating, a you know filling out of the who we are when the other is slightly less it makes you know there's a putting us up putting other down but it's incredibly seductive I mean think of the best-selling papers in the world are the tabloids and newspapers at, at a supermarket right and what are they I mean they're just basic gossip slander about people that are very well known and we have some fascination that we can't get rid of we get interested and we get entertained and this mind is restless and we find with others that sometimes it's the easiest pathway with people that are are friends or partners or whatever to um, entertain ourselves and boost ourselves by talking in a slightly disparaging way or a very disparaging way about others and it causes suffering and just to say that that slander doesn't always, it's not just what we say, it's also what we don't say. Because if we're with a group of people that are are slandering or talking in a demeaning way about some other group, some other group in the population that's a minority, making uh, jokes that are demeaning, and we don't in some way say anything if we laugh along, if we act like we're part of it, we're part of it. So the suffering of it is that in any moment that we have any judgment and we speak out that judgment actually makes it more full blown about others, a negative aversive judgment, uh, we are basically creating that, that armoring around our heart that, um, that pushes others away. We're distancing from others and we're creating a self that is in some way an aversive self that is our spacesuit identity and by the way it doesn't matter whether um, we are insecure and it makes us feel actually it kind of reinforces insecurity when we talk about others or, or it makes us feel grandiose. One friend described he and his co-workers would go to a bar after after hours and, and talk about their boss who they kind of collectively disliked and he was a very controlling guy or whatever. But he told me that after some months of it, he realized he always left feeling a little bit slimy. Do you know what I mean? That word was the best, and I thought it was such a right word that you just don't quite like yourself. You can feel that it's a little bit slimy to be talking about others. And that when we start committing ourselves to mindful speech, you start becoming even more sensitive to it feeling like a contraction in your own heart when you speak about another in a way that's so far from reverential. Let's just take a moment to reflect on that one together. So this is just, again, with interest, without adding judgment to yourself. Because we know if we are very hooked on gossiping in a negative way about others, our mind gossips negatively about ourselves. Judgment is judgment. It gets directed outward and inward. So sensing where this might be true for you, sensing where you might talk behind people's back in a way that you wouldn't want them to know, you wouldn't want them to hear you directly. And noticing your sense of yourself when you're in the midst of that? Do you like yourself? Is this the heart-mind that you have touched at other times when you're really open and free? Can you sense a difference? Can you feel it in your body? Can you feel it in your mind, the difference of the self-sense when you're talking about another in a slightly disparaging way, and who you are when you're sincere and open-hearted, when you're really at home in yourself? Just to notice that. And take a few full breaths. Okay, this is the last one. The the guideline to refrain from harsh speech, meaning speech that will cause pain. It's a, it could be harsh speech that we're scolding or attacking directly. It could be harsh speech that there's kind of an insult, that we're insulting somebody, putting them down. And many of us know this one. It, it, it's the it's speech we regret often, but it comes out more impulsively than the others. It's not. It's a little less deliberate often, and it's when a, a child doesn't cooperate, and we kind of lash out, or we we say consequences, we start threatening. Our partner comes home late, and or doesn't drive the way we want them to. Driving's often the place where a lot comes out. <laughs> Have you noticed that? It really brings up a lot. Um, it happens with people that live together. Somebody leaves a mess. It just. It, somebody spends money in a way that we don't think is right. Judgment, lashing out. So that's harsh speech. And and it always has the intention to control in some way, that we're trying to control or push away. So the guidelines, again, to speak what's true and what's helpful. And with harsh speech, we might say things that are true. But if the way we say it is angry, aversive, wanting to hurt does it help? Now I'm often asked the question so when somebody has caused harm or we're supposed to be all nicey-nice you know like and we're not supposed to you know speak you know and this this goes for the um, the slander thing we're not supposed to speak negatively and we're not supposed to have any anger at all and so and, and the response to that because that's a really big question is that of course we have to speak the difficult truths. Withholding the difficult truths is, is a, the inaction, the not speaking is an action. And, you know, because we don't want violators to get away from harm. It's like uh, Nimoler's thing, you know, if I didn't speak up for the socialists and for the Jews, we have to speak up. Yet, it's not so helpful if it's coming from a place of anger or hatred. Why? Because the very thing we're speaking up about, some violation, we're just adding another violence to it, our energy. And the truth is that when we speak, people hear the tone of our voice. They hear the energy, they take the energy that we're communicating way more fully than the content of our words. So if you're trying to communicate something and it's a truth, but it's the energy of anger, you're just not gonna be effective. It's not like you shouldn't do it. It's just, it's not so effective. Does that make sense? Speaking what's true and what's helpful. So our anger is intelligent. It tells us, oh, a violation. Oh, I need to protect something. But if we don't have the capacity to wait a bit and speak from the intelligence behind the anger, then we just don't end up getting an outcome that's helpful. So the suffering of harsh speech, more violence. It reinforces the neural pathways in our own mind and body so we get the biochemistry of aggression, of stress, armored heart. In other words, it keeps us trapped in an identity of an aggressive, threatened self. So again, I ask you to reflect, just take a moment. and just sense where for you, you might be paying more attention to harsh speech and whether it's the aggressive version or the passive aggressive version where there's some guilt in some way coming in sideways, where you are landing your judgment anyway but just sensing where that might be the case for you and when it, when it happens, whether it's with a child, a partner, a colleague, your sense of your own self, how does it feel in those moments? How does it feel right afterwards? And taking a few full breaths. So then the inquiry turns us to this. If we begin to identify where we are not mindful, where we are in some way in the grip of reactivity, that's a huge, huge step towards coming into wise speech, into having a very healing way of being with each other. It really is the shift from hell to heaven. And how do we activate that? There's a few pieces that are important. The first is obviously your commitment. If you, after listening, have something more in you that feels dedicated to speaking from presence, to um, speaking in a way that's wise and healing, that, is the, that opens the door in a big way. Then there's a few key pieces. One is getting the knack of pausing, that when you're speaking and if you find yourself gossiping or you find yourself, you're getting aggressive in some way or you find yourself exaggerating, that you get the knack of pausing in the midst pausing before you say something's even harder but there's three different possibilities either you're gonna do it you're gonna have the sense of about to say something and you're gonna pause that's the hardest catch yourself in the middle a little bit easier or afterwards you pause and you reflect and you learn something from it for the next time the main thing is don't get judgmental of yourself or punishing because that really binds the whole deal up okay just pausing when you can so that's the first piece You'll remember that line I love so much between the stimulus and the response there is a space and in that space is our power and our freedom so there's going to be a stimulus for you to say something and if you can pause at some point that space will begin to tap you into the freedom that's possible that's the first The second is learning to inquire and find out your intention. What's the intention under what's going on? If you're gossiping, what's your intention? If you're getting harsh, what's your intention? Okay? If you are finding yourself exaggerating, what's your intention? Because when you can catch your intention, more of you is resting in that wakefulness than the spacesuit self that's acting and you can have more choice. That's the second part. Look at the outcome. Start looking, what's the outcome when I do this? What's the outcome of exaggerating, of gossiping, of being aggressive? When we can start seeing the outcome that's called the karmic consequence, we realize it creates distance. I don't feel good about myself when this happens. That's another piece that's really important. Pema Chodron says, we don't set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. I think that's so beautiful. What if we really looked at the outcome of how we speak? How does this affect another person's heart? Is what I'm saying in some way being helpful? An example just to share with you of a woman that I worked with some, she was a a long-time meditator and she had had a decades-long kind of standoff with her older sister. They were very, very different. She was really bright and, but very kind of confrontational and idealistic and opinionated this woman that I'm talking about, and her older sister was more conventional. I mean, this 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 woman growing up, she was impulsive, and she was the family bad girl, and she'd always get into trouble. And her old so she and her older sister very different temperaments, and ended up not not having much to do with each other as adults. But when after their dad died and their mom got sick, they ended up coming together around different you know times for family gatherings, and at one she went ready for difficulty because she always deep down felt like, you know, that her sister was the one rejecting her. That was the feeling she had. That she was too much, too much to handle, that feeling. So there they are. She's going to the Thanksgiving gathering. She's ready for difficulty. And they start talking about her mother's Diet, because her mother had been sick, and she start, and this woman starts suggesting maybe a gluten free diet would be helpful, and you know the problems with gluten and what yeast and so on and so forth and her sister said, Oh everything 's got to fit into your philosophy doesn 't it and something like that and so this woman kind of left when she had a chance, and she was really felt hurt, and once again, there was a sense that she just doesn't like who I am and she, you know, there's always something wrong with the way I act or speak and I can't make her like me and she doesn't understand. She went through this whole thing and then she paused and she started asking herself, okay, so what was my intention in talking even about the gluten? And she realized you know, in some ways she wanted to be helpful, but she could feel in herself that she was also trying to kind of assert herself as kind of the again, I know all about this, you know in some way be in some way she was trying to get recognized for her brightness and her knowledge and so on, and so she saw that, and she said, okay so that 's my intention, and what 's the outcome? Well, it puts her off when i 'm the one that knows stuff and i 'm the one that's you know got a got a kind of plan of action and has a strong belief or opinion it puts her off so she started seeing the outcome of that and then she had this prayer which i think is really beautiful which was not my will but my heart's will not my will but my heart's will like my will is you know my will my ego wants to assert itself and prove itself and be the smart one and the clever one My heart's will. What does my heart want?" And that's when she got down to a deeper intention. I really want to sense the possibility of us holding a space together of care. I want to find that with her. She went back into the room where everybody was and was was quieter for the rest of the evening, but still, you know, kind of... She didn't assert her opinions or anything very much. But she did, um, at some point, you know, she was talking to her sister, comment on her niece, her sister's daughter, and how her niece had come into her own in a way with so much composure and grace, much like her, her older sister. So she basically said something very affirmative, which was a surprise to her, her older sister. They left, and, and the next time they got together, um, it was, there was a lot more ease, and at some point they laughed over an old family story, and later that night, her sister confessed what a hard time she had been having with her teenage son, and um, something had shifted, and then she asked her, then she, her older sister told her, "Well, thank you for being uh, a shoulder to lean on, you know." And that was the beginning of a real shift. And what she would do over and over again when they were together on some level saying, not my will, but my heart's will. And she just kind of didn't follow her old patterns of trying to prove herself with her speech. Why speech arises from presence? It really arises from presence. It's just like meditation, it takes practice because we have habits of a lifetime of how we wanna show ourselves to the world. That spacesuit self has a way of talking. It's very hard unless we learn to pause, unless we ask ourselves, really, what's my intention for this? Unless we start looking, what's the outcome when I say this? And then remember what matters to us. Those are the steps. So just to, last piece I'd like to do is just to name a little bit of the blessings of coming into this presence and naming what's true but with a lot of heart and one of the blessings is that it allows for a profound intimacy with others I mean the given is that we have a lot of each of us has a lot of um, imperfections and what we'd call flaws and if we can acknowledge them and not cover them up then we can work with them with each other Robert Johnson writes this. He says, the night before their marriage, they held a ritual where they made their shadow vows. The groom said, I will give you an identity and make the world see you as an extension of myself. The bride replied, I will be compliant and sweet, but underneath I will have the real control. If anything goes wrong, I will take your money and your house. Laughter then they drank champagne and laughed heartily at their foibles knowing that in the course of the marriage these shadow figures would inevitably come out. They were ahead of the game because they had recognized the shadow and unmashed it. Do you see? We spend so much energy covering the shadow, feeling like it's unsafe, that we have to defend and protect and cover. What if we started practicing naming what's true? Naming the truth. So then there's speaking the truth of what's good. To be able to, just as this woman did with her sister, name what we see that is good. It's as uh, Naomi Rachel Remen describes, she describes her grandfather doing that. She said he died when she was seven. She said she had never lived in a world without him in it before and it was hard. He had looked at me, she writes, as no one else had, and he called me by a special name, Nashumala which means little beloved soul. There was no one left to call me this anymore. At first I was afraid that without him to see me and tell God who I was, I might disappear. But slowly over time I came to understand that in some mysterious way, I had learned to see myself through his eyes and that once blessed, we are blessed forever. Many years later, when in her extreme old age, my mother surprisingly began to light candles and talk to God herself, I told her about these blessings and what they had meant to me. She had smiled at me sadly. I've blessed you every day of your life, Rachel, she told me. I just never had the wisdom to do it out loud. So wise speech speaking from presence is really a, an opportunity to offer our blessings if we can really begin to sense the possibility of um, speaking from a loving heart Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way he says when you say something like I love you with your whole being not just with your mouth or your intellect it can transform the world So we think about that, can we do that? I mean, we, we very often say, love you, honey, or whatever, you know, but how often do we like really stop and really get present and really say that truth that we love someone? We're shy about it, we're scared. But when we practice speaking those truths, whether it's I love you or I see your goodness, Neshumala, little beloved soul, when we speak from that loving place, it's amazing how profoundly helpful it is because we all need that. We need each other to mirror that. We need to be reminded, it's a blessing. Remember Mother Teresa saying that kind words ripple out endlessly. It's true. So this is the opposite of harsh speech. It's when we, we have this take practice in kind words. They ripple out endlessly. As a little bit of a closing, um, we're speaking a lot about individually. It can be built into the culture, This this speaking from presence, from heart, and again, Rachel Naomi Remen, I'd like to share with you. She went to Fiji and she was describing some of the, what good manners was in Fiji and I really love this, she said she was in a hotel and the brochure was quite specific. She's telling me not to be alarmed if I found myself greeted by strangers and indeed people would think it rude if I did not respond in kind. The proper form was to make eye contact and acknowledge each other, every single person, by nodding and smiling or by saying bula, okay? So she's in this, she was raised in New York City. She said she thought that would be extremely unwise to go around saying bula to everyone but she decided to try it. So she said, this is what it means. You walk down the street to a post office to buy a stamp for a postcard. On the way, you might pass three or four people, greeting each one of them with a nod or bula and receiving their greeting. You buy your stamp, a transaction which takes only a moment. Walking back, you pass the very same people and it's expected that you greet them again, even though you passed by only moments ago. Annoying at first, by the end of a week, it had become second nature. Then I returned to the States. Rushing out to fill an empty refrigerator, I found myself on a busy street in California, all alone. No one made eye contact. No one greeted me. No one smiled. In some very profound way, I felt both invisible and diminished, yet the street was totally familiar, it was my home. The Fijians are aware of a basic human law. We all influence one another. We are part of each other's reality. There is no such thing as passing someone and not acknowledging your moment of connection, not letting others know their effect on you and seeing yours on them. For Fijians, connection is natural, just the way the world is made. Here, we pass each other with our lights out as ships in the night. So the invitation in our personal lives and as a culture is to wake up our hearts and express these hearts with kind speech, with wise speech, speaking our truths, really showing up. So I'd like to close with just a very brief reflection, if you will, just to close your eyes. in a very direct way, we're exploring this inquiry of what creates suffering and what really allows us to be free. And as I mentioned earlier, if we did nothing but really dedicate our attention to speaking from presence, these hearts would blossom. So taking some moments right now, just to bring to mind a situation where you might have noticed you habitually get caught in some version of unwise speech, some version of not being present, not being open-hearted. Bringing that to mind. Bringing to mind a situation, just picking one, and this will give you something that you can. If you have one specific place to pay attention, you'll find a lot more waking up than if you leave this talk and think, okay, I'm going to be mindful in every situation. One situation, stopping at the frame in that situation where you might get triggered, where you might. In some way, lash out or exaggerate or or withhold information or speak about another person in a not conscious way. So you stop at that frame and just just notice your intention what what intention you're coming from when you're getting caught? Is it just to kind of distract yourself or entertain yourself? Is it to? Impress. What kind of, are you trying to control something? Just noticing your intention and the outcome. What's the outcome of it? How does it end up making you feel, make others feel? Do you like yourself in those situations? And sense your deepest intention. What is your deepest intention? How do you want to speak? What's the effect you want to have? Where do you want to be living from in your own being? You might just imagine if you could pause and remember this in this situation, how things might unfold. just feeling your aspiration to speak from presence in this situation, in the situations of your life. We close with a very simple prayer of metta. May we remember and feel that purity of heart that's really our Buddha nature. that purity of heart that cares about and reveres this life. May we remember that, may we call on that. And may we see that purity and goodness in each other and call that out, bring that out, help it to blossom. May all beings realize and trust the loving presence that is their true nature.